Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 5 to 11. Again, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 5 to 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under the chair in front of you, and you can open it to page 903. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's start with a prayer. May we be taught by your word to place our trust only in you, and to serve and honor you as we should, so that we may glorify your holy name in all our living, and edify our neighbor by our good example, rendering to God the love and obedience which faithful servants owe their masters and children their parents, since it has pleased you to graciously receive us among the number of your servants and children. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been a wonderful journey the last many months, studying the first letter to the Corinthian church. And as we have been going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and many times, even word for word, we are literally witnessing the word of God transforming us by the power of the Holy Spirit maturing us in Christ. And this is what he has promised the church. This is something that I have been incredibly, incredibly privileged to witness here. I am humbled and amazed by the magnitude of God's grace that has been poured out on this church. And this is the testimony that I hear from all of you as you are listening to the word being exposited and preached week in and week out. It's the ordinary means of grace as the read and preached word along with the sacraments that God has appointed for our spiritual nourishment and growth. This is the task that has been appointed to me and any other elder that would stand behind this pulpit. This is what it means to have true awakening. This is true revival. I heard once a preacher saying that what he did was analogous to being a chef or a cook, where he would take the ingredients of Scripture and then he would make a dish to present it to the people. At first listen, I thought it sounded poignant until I read Acts 6. You see, God appointed two kinds of officers in the church. One is a deacon. And a deacon is someone who deacons, which literally means to wait on or to serve tables. A deacon is a waiter 
of tables, the church was getting threatened with division. It was getting threatened with division over the distribution of food to the widows. So the deacons were set up so that they could keep and maintain the unity of the church by their service. That's the role of a deacon. Keep the unity of the church. Deacons do not stir up division, but they are especially called by the church to promote and maintain unity. And so elders, on the other hand, what were they to do? In Acts 6, we see that. They were also appointed to deacon, which means to wait and serve, but they were appointed to wait and serve the Word of God and prayer. The Word of God and prayer. That's what elders are appointed to do. So elders who preach then, they don't mix up the ingredients or cook up the food. Elders who preach just serve the food. They just wait on the table and give the food as it has been given. The person behind the pulpit is to exposit the word and to teach it. And when we see a faithful living out, an execution of these commands, we see again that God, who has ordained the ordinary means of grace to nourish the church, grow the church. And so that being said, let's dive into the word this morning. As of last week, we are on chapter 15. It's a longer chapter. In fact, it is the longest one in this letter, but it is a monumental one because it deals with the resurrection. Resurrection is what we as Christians, this is what we are about. We are people about the resurrection. We are all about the resurrection. John Locke would write, our Savior's resurrection is truly of great importance in Christianity, so great that his being or not being the Messiah stands or falls with it. So for us, it's not just simply about resurrection, but even more so than it's about our Lord's resurrection. That's what we are focused on. So much so that in the early church, the common greeting between believers was, He is risen. That was the common greeting. They didn't just say it during Easter. And He meant no one other than Jesus Christ. He is risen. This is important because just like in Corinth, in the city of Corinth 2,000 years ago, the church today is starting to accept ideas that are antithetical to the gospel. We are being convinced that our best life is now or that somehow we must make this world, current world, into a social utopia. You see, if you understand the resurrection, the most glorious stage of your life will be after you pass on from this life, meaning you die only to resurrect again, but this time with a perfect body. This is something that I believe innately we all long for, to resurrect with a perfect body. But by adopting the tenets 
of the prosperity gospel or even the social gospel, we are losing sight of the life to come. It's because of the life to come we have hope in the midst of current suffering. It's because of the life to come we understand the deep and true aspect of justice. What is ironic is that both of these dominant so-called gospels running rampant in churches, whether it's focused on receiving wealth or focused on redistributing wealth, are overly focused, I would say even obsessed with material wealth. This is why you see massive corruption with prosperity gospel preachers all the way to professing socialists because there is something that they both hold in common. It's lots of houses. The resurrection of Christ turns us away then from this false dichotomy of a solely self-centered, personal, material redemption to even a social welfare program that will somehow, somehow solve all the ills of society. What we recognize with the resurrection is not, is not these truncated and these really profound distortions of the gospel, but what we recognize with the resurrection is the true and full gospel. Why is the resurrection important? Because you and I and every single person will be resurrected. But some of us will be resurrected to eternal life and others to eternal death. All will be held accountable for the deeds that were done during their life here on earth. Who will hold them to account? The Creator God. The Creator God will hold all of humankind to account. What will we be held in account to? His decrees his laws. You know, I was talking with an older gentleman in the past, and we got to this point where he would, you know, whether there's heaven or hell, and um, he responded this way, that he believed that he would go to heaven because he really tried his best. He believed that he would go to heaven because he really tried to be good, but he wasn't good all the time, you see. Then, by his own admission then, he was evil. By his own admission, by saying he wasn't good all the time, means that you are evil. And what I'm surprised by is when I just have a conversation, they find out that I'm a pastor, and all of a sudden, I didn't bring up heaven and hell, they bring it up, is that they start to implicate themselves. The more we talk, the implicate. I wasn't perfect, but I tried to be good. That means you were evil. Just because you say, yeah, sure, I wasn't perfect. What is the standard, though, for eternal life? What is the standard for eternal life? It is perfection. Who gets to dictate eternal life with God? God does. And it is absolute perfection and utter perfection. Because he is absolutely and utterly perfect, if you are not perfect, 
you will be resurrected and you will be sent to hell. You might respond, well, that's a bit harsh. Well, it may seem so at first. Well, let's think about it. As you read the Bible, you see that those that are not holy, those that are not holy, even when an angel would come to visit them, they would quake and they would fall down on their faces like dead men. God tells even Moses, Moses wanted to look at God. God, I want to see you. God would tell Moses that if he were to look at him, that he would die. The sheer weight of God's perfection and holiness would crush him. Unholy people not only don't, can't be near God, they don't want to be near God. Because even when Moses came down from the mountain, because he had seen the backside of the glory of God, his face was shining. And then the people couldn't take it, and they asked him to please wear a veil over your face. Because the Bible shows us that light exposes darkness, and the people love the darkness more than light. They couldn't take it that when the light shines, your sins are revealed. On another note, I've been having some difficult conversations, especially with some of you and our young parents too. How do we face the constant lies that we encounter everywhere? It's everywhere. It's constantly bombarding us in our social media platforms. You want to instill within our children, the ones that we love so dearly, good biblical values, the values that will uplift, that would uphold society. But TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, they all point to something else. They all lead you somewhere else. How can we as parents even compete with TikTok? You can't compete with TikTok. TikTok is on your, on your kids' brains 24-7. How can I compete with TikTok is one of the questions that was posed to me. And I only had one answer. It's you counter it with truth. You counter darkness with light. And then we see... Even then, men love the darkness more. You see, the Bible has warned us in both the Old and New Testaments that we will be raised from the dead either to eternal life or eternal death. Both the Old and New Testaments. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says this, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is not new stuff. This is something that God has been saying since He's given us the written word. And so what's the determining factor? What's the determining factor on whether you will be resurrected to eternal life or resurrected to eternal punishment? It's 
Are you perfect? It's not. Are you kind of good sometimes? Because someone can say, hey, hey, I didn't murder. 99.99% of the time, I was alive. If someone would say that to you, that they didn't murder 99.99% of the time, you would respond, bro, you're a murderer. Likewise, the argument that you didn't sin most of the time will not work. No sinner can enter the kingdom of God. Paul reiterates this in Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's the truth. That's what God is showing us. But you see, chapter 6, verse 9 and 10 don't end just there. There is a turn from verse 10 to verse 11. And this is what Paul wrote that we went over. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. Some of you were like this. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That means we aren't these things anymore because we are justified in Christ. And that's what we heard last week in verse 1. That's the gospel. That's the good news. It's this gospel that was preached, that you received, that you stand on, and that you're saved by. The power of the gospel was then evidenced by the people that received it, stood on it, and were saved by it. Don't you see? You are the fruit of the gospel. People see the church as evidence of gospel power. There was literally nothing that you could do to save yourself. Literally nothing that you could do to save yourself from God's righteous wrath but the gospel assures salvation to those that believe and trust in Christ. And in the end of verse 2, it goes, unless your faith was in vain, unless you had empty faith. And starting from verse 3, Paul gives two kinds of witness accounts. So from verse 3 to verse 11, Paul is going to give two kinds of witness accounts of Christ's death and resurrection. Last week, we went over how Christ died for our sins. This implies Christ died for our sins. This implies that Christ was sinless. You can't die for someone else's sins if you are a sinner. You have to die for your own sins. But for him to be able to die for someone else's sins means that he was sinless. And because he was sinless, he was able to die for our sins. Then he was buried. That means he really did die. He wasn't one of those, oh, your heart stopped for a few seconds. Whoa. He wasn't that. He was a corpse, 
it was a complete and utter death. And that's why on the third day of him being buried, he was raised from the grave. This is God's sign of accepting the sacrifice. That's what we mean by propitiation. Jesus atoned for our sins. That means we are now, when we are resurrected, our destination isn't death. But when we are resurrected, our destination is life. That then, my friends, truly is the good news. Now, I had mentioned before that Paul gives us two types of witness accounts to prove this fact. And the first one is this. In verse 3 to 4, we had gone over, but I'll go over it again really briefly. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. Again, just this is what he did. He just waited the table with the word. He received it and he delivered it is what a preacher needs to do. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with with the scriptures the first type of witness account is in accordance with the scriptures the new testament had not been written yet so this means the old testament christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures of the old testament where many acknowledge that this first in accordance with our with the scriptures is the past many passages of fills many passages but especially Isaiah 53, and we'll just look at verses 5 to 6, but the entire chapter of Isaiah 53 is what it would have pointed to in the very least. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5 and 6, when it says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, Isaiah 53 says this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That he was buried then, and he was raised on the third day then, in accordance with the scriptures, where again there are multiple sites But especially, it would have reminded the reader of Psalm 16, verse 8 to 11. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And these were written, these prophecies were written hundreds and even a thousand years before Christ even came on the earth. And what had come to pass was exactly how the scriptures prophesied that it would. This is why the truth of the resurrection is absolute. It's a promise in the scriptures, and the promise was fulfilled, and it started with the Messiah, but it was fulfilled. The scriptures absolutely predicted it from Jesus' birth to even where he would be born, 
to how he would die, and as we have seen, how he will be raised, and then how he will reign. You have the prophecies of a dying Messiah, and you have the prophecies of a reigning Messiah, and in between you have the prophecy of the resurrected Messiah. And so this resurrection is evidenced by the Scriptures according to the Scriptures. That's the first type of witness. And today we come now upon the second type of witness. It's the eyewitnesses. In verse 5, And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. In any kind of judicial system, eyewitness testimony is a solid piece of evidence, especially where you have intelligent, competent, and honest men and women. Not only that, where in most cases, two eyewitnesses would be enough. You even have one instance mentioned here where more than 500 people saw him. Charles Hodge would go on to say of the resurrection that it is the best authenticated event in ancient history. It's because of the massive amount of eyewitnesses. And rather strategically, Paul starts to mention Jesus appearing to Cephas first. This was proof then of not just his resurrection, but his mercy. Jesus went right to Peter because he was going to use Peter Peter, who was so brash and confident, he called himself the Godot, I mean, the greatest disciple of all time. He would call himself that only then to deny Jesus to the degree that he would throw curses on himself. He would throw curses on himself to try and convince others that he did not know this man. Afterwards, he would go out into the courtyard and weep bitterly. The disciple was to that the disciple that was to stay with Jesus to the very end, who professed his love for him, who professed his loyalty to him, abandoned him. And now that Jesus was dead, Peter could never make it up to him. And so when Jesus was raised from the dead, he goes straight to Cephas and meets with him. It's an incredible show of mercy. It's also an incredible display of his sovereignty. God is showing us that he can not only use straight sticks, but he also uses crooked ones as well to draw the lines that he wants. Peter would go on to become the most dominant member and unquestionable leader of the disciples. And Jesus appears to the other disciples after Peter. He did meet with them. He ate with them. He shared life with them, and this is why we understand the church to be founded on apostolic witness. In our confessions, we stated that this church is one holy Catholic and apostolic. And this is also why the church would devote themselves then in Acts 2.42 to the apostles' teaching. They were the ones Christ chose to give out and write doctrine. So it was Peter and the twelve that saw the risen Christ at different times 
and at different places. This wasn't just some mass hysteria or illusion. These were competent people who witnessed the risen body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he adds, there were more than 500 people who saw him. This is a massive amount of people. So where before you had a quality in witnesses, Peter and the twelve, you know what Peter and the twelve did? They spent day in and day out with Jesus. They spent day in and day out eating, sleeping, traveling, ministering with Jesus. Those are people who definitely know who Jesus was. You know one thing about short-term mission trips, you spend... Many of you have been on them. You spent one or two weeks with them. But because you spend so much time with them, even in that short amount of time, you spend day in and day out with them on this mission trip, you grow incredibly close with one another. And that's just one or two weeks. Imagine three years. That's what you had with Peter and the Twelve. Quality witnesses. Then you have the 500 plus, this massive quantity of witnesses. Even according to Old Testament law, all you needed was two to three eyewitness testimonies to verify an event. And here we have this massive overflow of testimony. 497 people more than you needed. And Paul writes, some fell asleep. That means they passed, they died. But there are those that are still alive. You know what that means? You can ask them yourself. As he was writing this letter to the Corinthians, he was saying there are more than 500 people that saw this, and there some are still alive. You can ask them yourself. They saw Jesus alive. The other gospel writers made this a practice too when they would write about certain events. Mark would write about Simon the Cyrene, who would carry the cross for Christ. And then he would add that he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why? Because you could literally go directly to Alexander and Rufus and ask him, Hey, did your dad carry the cross for Christ? Whoa, that must have been insane. And then Paul says that he appeared to James and then again to all the apostles. Who is James? Probably not the son of Alphaeus or James, the son of Zebedee. They were both already apostles. This is James, the brother of our Lord. He is the one that wrote the epistle, James. He would go on to lead the Jerusalem council, James. He's special because he did not believe in Jesus Christ. He was the half-brother of Jesus, but he didn't believe Jesus was the Christ. In John chapter 7, verse 5, it says he didn't believe in him. The brothers did not believe in Jesus. But it says here that Jesus appeared to James. James, once a skeptic and unbeliever, would begin his letter in James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That word for servant is doulos, which means slave. He introduces himself as a slave of Christ. What a change from once unbelieving to now a slave of Christ. What Jesus' life couldn't even do, the resurrection assures. 
And so these two kinds of witness accounts are presented to the Corinthians. Number one, the scriptures that were passed down for thousands of years being completely fulfilled in Christ. And number two, the eyewitness accounts of the risen Christ from all sorts of people. People that believed in him to people that did not. All giving accounts of the risen Christ. This isn't something that you could just fabricate. Even the ones that believed in Christ, you know what they did when Christ was crucified? They went into hiding. They were cowering for their own lives. Now that your master is dead, you aren't going to go out, run out, proclaiming his resurrection. Not just you, but 500 plus people just running out, proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ, saying that they saw him, not only for ridicule for them to embrace, but death, to the point of death, they were like, I saw Jesus. We're going to kill you. I don't know what, what do you want me to do. I literally saw him. And they would be martyred. And now we get to the last of the eyewitnesses. Last of all, as one untimely born, he also appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Paul wasn't just an unbeliever. He was a murderer. And not just of anyone. He specifically and purposefully murdered Christians. And so he sees the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus where he was going to kill more Christians. All of a sudden Christ appears and the light is so bright it slams him to the ground and the only thing he could hear is, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And all he could respond was, who are you, Lord? And the response he gets back is, I am Jesus. Paul saw Jesus. It was enough to blind him, but he saw him. And he says, last of all, as to one untimely born. That word for untimely born is ectroma. Untimely born means ectroma. That means a monstrous birth or a premature birth. It literally means an abortion or miscarriage. Ectroma literally means an abortion or miscarriage. This is very, very strong language. And he uses it on himself. This means he was so despised and so hated. He was so useless and so ugly. And yet, and yet... It was Jesus who appeared to me. I, Paul, who is not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. I persecuted Christ. I am a murderer. It was me that Christ appeared to. You know, there are some experiences that stay with you. And one I like to mention is a few years ago when we went to Bergen County Jail. We went to 
we would just sing a few songs and, you know, someone would give a, a short sermon. I remember entering where we would do this for the inmates of that jail. And it was like uh, the space was the size of a very small basketball court. Many of you went with me, so you remember. But we would go in there first, set up and prep. Man, and when these prisoners came in after we were there, some of them were so large. I thought they could snap some of our girls in two. I was a little, like, scared for our team. They were so huge. And it was these guys. When the word was preached, they would sit on the edge of their seats listening to Genesis 1 being preached. And afterwards they would leave but stop and thank me. You know, some of us get to hear the word of God preached weekly. I wonder if we hold to the same attitude because... Because of God's grace, because of God's grace, Paul didn't lack. Paul, who considered himself the chief of sinners, and I don't think he meant that as hyperbole. I really think he considered himself the lowest of the scum because he was able to work harder than anyone else. His attitude was better than anyone else. You know why? Because of God's grace grace he goes on from killing people he goes on from killing people to being an apostle because of god's grace you know how does one go from killing christians to one of the greatest evangelists how do you go from being an abortion to the greatest apostle that ever lived you know how he saw the living Christ and now he's saying that there are two kinds of these witnesses the sheer quality and quantity of eyewitnesses all believe the same thing Christ is risen and by this preaching you also believe and so we are left with the reality of the resurrection and the truth is that, number one, this is the truth, we will all be resurrected, some to life and some to death. Number two, only those who live an absolutely perfect and holy life will get to see eternal life. All others will receive their just punishment for all of eternity. Number three, recognizing our sinfulness, we ought to respond by completely turning to Christ, the living Christ. Run to Him, and He will change your heart. It's when we recognize these three things, the three implications of the resurrection, that we will have a changed life. Once given to a life of vanity and destruction, now a life of total commitment that will bear eternal fruit. Praise be to God, our risen Lord. Let's pray.